So there's this experience where you read the text, you know that's what you're going to preach on, and you kind of go, I don't want to preach on that. This is not a a happy slappy text. This is not a text you're ever going to hear preached at a funeral or a wedding. Nobody is going to sit down and choose this text and say, yeah, this is the one that I'm going to, I want to preach through. Uh, One of the reasons why I do preach through books of the Bible is because I can't just skip it. This is not a, uh, as I have struggled with God over the course of this week with this text. And I'm like, God, there are people in this church who've lost someone that they love. There are people in this church who are struggling financially. There are people in this church who who need to, to, or want to, feel recharged when they leave here, and this ain't the text for it. I mean, who wants to talk about hypocrites, right? But this week, God has showed me that that's a very arrogant attitude, and that's assuming that I know what you need and not Him. And then, after I resign myself to where I'm going to preach on the text whether I want to or not, I hope you see today, I hope I'm able to express today that God has shown me that this is a really beautiful text that can help us as we go through our lives, that can help us and feed us, maybe even recharge us. Let's look at the text. In Luke 12, remember we were, uh, the last story in Luke 11 we were in, uh, Luke was telling us the story of Jesus being in somebody's house where he is just being rude. He didn't wash his hands before they ate, and the guy's like, thinking to himself, dude, what's up with this? And Jesus read his thoughts and say, hey, you know, you're all worried about the outside of the cup, but you're not worried about the inside. And then the story shifts. We said that in the meantime, which means it's kind of like, you know, uh, back at the League of Justice, uh, kind of a a transition point uh, where it's like, and and then one time kind of thing in the same time period, when so many thousands of the people have gathered together. You can even tell with the flow that it is in the ESV that they're struggling to translate this. What Jesus did was he took the largest number in the Greek language, which was 10,000, was the largest number that they had, and he made it plural. So it would be like if somebody said, you know, how how many, uh, I recently had somebody say, how many people are there? And I said, all the people. They're just, you know what, I can't move. There's just so many people here. Or if somebody says, how much does that cost? And you go, all, all the monies. They just, you know what, the, all of them. We can't afford it, and that's the main point. That's kind of what's being conveyed here is that the biggest number that we got, and then a bunch of those. In fact, it was so many thousands of people that people were trampling one another. And then he began to say to his disciples, that is a weird thing that's going on here. You've got this massive crowd, thousands of people that have come to hear Jesus teach. And he kind of turns his back on the crowd and says, hey, let me tell you guys something. He's talking to his little group. In fact, next week's text, we'll see that somebody in the crowd ends up yelling to Jesus and going, hey, I got a question. You mind? We're out here. There's some of us here too, but right now, and what we're going to look at today, Jesus thought this was super important that the disciples knew. You know, as we read the gospel stories, there's always this division between Jesus' disciples, the the, the twelve that he 
invested in. And there were three of those that he super invested in that every time he went someplace, he would say, he'd say, all right, y'all disciples, come with me. And then he would say, Peter, James, and John, y'all come with me. And he would go a little further. And so there were the disciples. Then there was a bigger group of, of 70, 120 people. That number kind of floats around that were people who were really into what Jesus was teaching. They followed him. In fact, after Judas committed suicide, it was from that group that Matthias was chosen. He was with them from the time Jesus was baptized. He saw the resurrection. He, so th- there was a larger group. So you had the 12, you had the 120, and then you had the crowds that Jesus almost treats with derision. It's, it's almost the opposite of a church growth movement. He almost acts like they're pain to be around. And, and he says mean things to them to try to run them off or confusing things like saying to the crowd, unless you all drink my blood or eat my flesh, you're not worthy of me. Which is not going to draw a crowd. Just sorry, that's just a strange thing for somebody to say. And sure enough, the text says, and everybody kind of wandered off. Everybody's like, oh, really, did he? Okay, well, we're going to go over here. So here's this crowd of people, so many thousands of people, and then Jesus turns and says to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Which is exactly why I personally didn't want to preach this sermon. Because we all know what leaven is. We've, we've been in church long enough to know. And if you haven't been, then you, you, you know instinctively. Uh, if you're making uh, bread, there used to, recently there was a type of, you know, monkey bread. Or there was some bread going around that everybody was trying to make. And you would get a starter. You'd get a little Ziploc bag with like just a little pinch of the bread in it. And then what you did was you, you kneaded up your dough and then you stuck that in there. And then, and then it would just grow. Have you ever watched bread rise? It just grows. And, and some, I know... We've had the mistake with a bread maker before that if, you're, if you put too much in there, it just keeps growing. And, then, and you open it, and you've got bread all up against the window of your, your bread maker. And you're like, whoa, we didn't do that right. That's not how that's supposed to look. But um, yeast will just permeate the whole thing. And Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So he's telling them, okay, all the Pharisees are a bunch of hypocrites, and we need to beware how they act. That word hypocrisy, when we hear the word, we automatically think of religious people who, who talk a good game, who play, you know, play like they're Christians, and then they, they don't act like it. The word actually just means actor. It was the word that's used in, in normal day-to-day Greek language of somebody that's an actor. And so it's somebody who's being fake. I remember uh, watching an interview with uh, an actor. I on purpose decided not to say his name. But he was, um, he, he was being interviewed after he was, did this blockbuster movie that won an Oscar. And the, the, the interviewer said, so how did you prepare for this role? And this particular actor was being a little bit of a smart aleck. And he said, well, what I do is I memorize my lines. And then uh, I go someplace and they, they put me in the costume that looks kind of like what's going on at that time. And then I, I recite those lines. And then the director says, no, 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 say them this way. And then I say them the way the director did. And then we just start the process over again. And the guy who was interviewing him said, uh, no, there has to be something more important than that. And he's like, no, acting is the dumbest job in the world. Anybody can do it. You just have to learn the lines and say them. And then you say them the way that the director who knows what the big vision of the picture is tells you to say them. It's simple. But some actors we know get into like super character. We've all read the stories of, of um, the guy that played the Joker, how he went to a hotel room and for 30 days 
he stayed in the hotel room and didn't see anybody. And he, he wrote out all these crazy notes. And, and we've heard the stories about actors who are playing the role of, of a handicapped person. And the whole film, they act like they're handicapped and they stay in character the whole time. I got to tell you, I'm too much of a smart aleck to deal with somebody like that. If, if somebody was playing a blind person and they kept tripping over things, I'd be putting boxes in front of them. Because if you're going to be that dumb, I'm going to play along and be dumb too. I, but some actors really super get into it. But I think the reason why Jesus' talk about hypocrisy made me uncomfortable the way that it makes probably made you uncomfortable is because, let's just be real here. Can we, let's just be honest. To one degree or the other, we're all hypocrites. I mean, part of it's na- the natural flow of life, right? I don't act the same way. You know, I, we all hear preachers say, why don't you get as excited at church as you do at an Alabama football game? Well, it's clearly two different venues, and I'm really thankful that you guys aren't throwing beer on each other right now. <laughs> or nobody's in the back cussing me out because I'm not coaching the way that you, you think I should. Or, I mean, it's a different place. We, we're smart enough to realize that you act differently at different places, right? I mean, I have been told the story. I honestly don't remember it. It's not that I blocked it out, that I was at a wedding one time as a small child, and then I was running up and down the aisles during the wedding, and then I ran into an aunt. Was it an aunt that I broke her hip at the wedding? An aunt. So I ran into some aunt and broke the hip. I broke her hip. That's the kind of kid I was. So those of you who have troubled kids, hey, there's hope. Um, I'm not sure that I'm the best hope, but there is hope. Um, so, and you know, what do we tell our kids? I tell my kids all the time, hey, don't act like that in here. The implication being that if you acted like that out there, it's okay. I mean, there are some times that we should just say, don't act like that, full stop. But we know that, there's, that we, ha- we act different in different places. And so, especially men, we have a tendency to compartmentalize things, right? I act a certain way at work because this is my work face, this is the way I act. And then we have, have the, the way our church face. And we have, we have the way that we act around our family. And we, we, they're different things because those are different environments. I'm, not, I'm doing a funeral tomorrow. I'm not going to preach the same way that I would preach in here. And if I did, people would get angry. That's not appropriate. But what ends up happening is sometimes we forget which face is real. And we all... To one degree or the other, we want people to think what's best of us. I will say this happens to me on a weekly basis. This happened Friday night at the Glencoe Hoax Bluff game. I walk up to a group of men, and three of the six, I know who they are, and I walk up, I'm like, hey, I'm Tom Hearson, I'm Tom Hearson, Tom Hearson, and uh, how are you guys doing? And then one of the guys goes, hey, I heard this joke at work. And you can look at the people who know who I am that start getting uncomfortable. <clears throat> and then they, the guy tells some j- dirty joke. And then, ha, ha, ha. And then somebody, the, the three guys who know I'm going to lean in and be like, yeah, so he's the preacher at North Glencoe. And then I'll get this. I am so sorry. I did not know you were a preacher. As if I'm the one you got to worry about, right? I've heard dirty jokes before. It's okay. I'm not the one who you're going to be standing in front of. And I try not to be that guy to go, hey, you really need to be worried about God because you're evil. Um, and I have found that when I do introduce myself as a preacher, either one of two things happen. Either the person that I introduce myself to either stops cussing or they start cussing a lot more than they ever would, one or the other, based on their character. And so we, we know, right, we put on a face, we put on a facade. 
If you were to meet the Queen of England, no matter how American you think you are, you're going to try to act proper. Oh, which hand am I supposed to use to shake her hand? That's just, we know that. What Jesus is saying here is, is that that's like leaven. That will start to transmogrify you so that at some point you get to the point where you can be that guy who comes to church and sings praise Jesus and then goes to work and acts like the devil. We all hear that and look in our own heart and go, well, that's me. That's me. Maybe not to the same degree as somebody over here, but that's me. And just like leaven, that could permeate everything. And so Jesus tells us how to be real. What he, and this aside, is he's leaning over to his disciples and saying, look, let, let's talk here for a minute. In front of the crowd, he tells them, okay, this is what you have to do to be real. And the first thing is that you've got to do is you've got to realize that nothing is really hidden. He says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, what you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the rooftops. There's a, there's a, uh, a little, little bit of a, a thing here that we might not get. In, in houses that were built in Judea at this time, the, it was stone foundations. And then walls would be built up and houses would be located. So like you and your neighbor would have a shared wall. And so people would literally, thieves would come in and dig under the wall. And while you were asleep, they'd be reaching up in under the wall and find, find your stuff and steal it. And so people started building rooms in the middle of their house, like a little, little linen closet kind of room, that they could put all their valuables in to, to protect them. But because everybody, I don't know about you, but when Ann and I were first married, we lived in an apartment on Valley Avenue in Birmingham that I had a neighbor that woke up every morning at 6 o'clock, and she must have been a believer because her alarm clock was Alexander Scorby reading the King James Bible. To this day, I can't listen to that guy say it through the Bible without going, I'm up for the love, because I could hear everything that went on in her apartment just like it was going on in mine. And clearly, it, it was uh, mutual because the people who lived under us, the guy literally threatened to call the police because we were walking so loud. So we've all lived in an apartment like that, and that's exactly what he's talking about, that if you wanted to talk to your wife about something that you didn't want everybody in the community to know, you would go inside of that little room that was in the middle of your house so that you could, okay, so we, I, I kind of wish we had something like that in our house. Just this week, I was uh, trying to explain, we have someone in the church that was very sick, that she ended up passing away, and I was trying to explain to one set of kids what was going on, and so I, they, they had gone to bed, and I was laying in, in the bed with, with them, and we were talking and I heard that little there's a spot right here that'll do it that little floor going crank crank and I looked in the bathroom door and you could see with the light that some other kids like leaned up against the door listening to what's going on <laughs> Ann and I've had discussions before about something and I walk outside of the door and I'm barefooted and I realize that the floor is hot right there in front of the door because some nosy little kid's been sitting there listening in and I know my kids will have to go that they're, that they're transporting the information. He said they're going to buy a car. <laughs> so I kind of need that inner room where I can talk about stuff. And what Jesus is saying here is that everything that you think is secret is going to come out. We see that day to day. How many times have you heard 
about that affair that that guy was having. God brings stuff like that out. It comes out in our life today. And what Jesus is saying is on that day, it's all coming out. You open an incognito tab and Google is not going to protect the holy God from seeing where you're going. God is not in heaven going, what's he doing now? So to put this in modern verbiage, Jesus is saying, your search history is going on your feed. Everybody's going to know. And furthermore, Jesus says, don't be afraid of men and what they can do about it. Be afraid of the one who can kill and send somebody to hell. Now, I've heard sermons preached and I've read commentaries where they think that that's talking about the devil. The devil is not the Lord of hell. Hell is his prison. That's talking about God the Father. He's the one who has control. And that's who we should fear. And ultimately speaking, the way to protect yourself against being fake, a phony, a hypocrite, is not be afraid of what men think, but be more afraid of what God thinks. That if you can do that, you can insulate yourself. This sermon is a great example I do not, did not want to preach this sermon. But I'm more afraid of standing in front of a holy God who says, I gave you my word and you didn't have the guts to preach it than I am about people getting mad because I'm preaching on hypocrisy. And that's a real little bitty example. As you go through your day, if you realize that God is going to hold you accountable for what you do, you're going to treat people different. I mean, I've always thought it's interesting, and I've always, as a, just a personal little thing, I tell a lot about a man's character, about the way he treats somebody who is on the org chart under him. If you're, and let me tell you a little secret, especially girls, if you go on a date with somebody and he's a jerk to the waitress, run. Because you don't want to be married to that guy. You don't want to be around that guy. If some, when I came to, first came to work to this church, there was a staff person that had gone and, and, and gone to a restaurant. He walked in the door and he flung his, the credit card in the receipt at Miss uh, Carolyn, who worked here at the time, and never said a word, just take care of that, and walked off. And I thought to myself, that ain't going to work. We're going to have to do some work on that. How you can change that is not by walking around going, I'm going to be different, I'm going to be different, I'm going to be different. But realize that God, who's way higher on the org chart than you are, is going to be asking you about it. That the way that we treat other people is going to, God's going to be questioning you. The things that you say, it doesn't matter if the preacher hears you telling that ugly joke. What matters is that God knows you told it. Sometimes we, we on this earth can get away with stuff. Sometimes that's really frustrating. We've got an entire book of the Bible in Haggai where he says, why is it that the thieves keep getting away with it? The most vile, nasty people are the people who are rich. And we all see that, but on, on that day, accounts are going to be balanced. Now, if we really think about it, do we want justice? I mean, in our own hearts, we want justice for everybody except ourselves. I don't want justice. I want mercy. 
See, God, you, you don't understand. The reason why I took that money was because I, I had to pay the bills. God, the reason why I was ugly to her is because I'd had a bad day. The reason why I walked in and, and kicked the dog and yelled at my kids is because of what happened at work. God, you got to understand my circumstances. But for everybody else, we want justice, right? And so what Jesus is pointing out and that the disciples would immediately recognize from what he said with this statement, we all know that in our secret mind and in our hearts, we are wicked. Thomas Shepard said, and I love this quote, I'm the most wicked person I know because I know my heart better than anybody else's and I know the depths of my own depravity. And so we read this and we go, ah, I can't do that. The God who thundered from Mount Sinai, you will have no other gods before me. You are to honor your father and your mother. Don't murder, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't covet. That's the same God who will judge me? I'm without hope. There's nothing I can do. If we're honest with ourselves, we read this and we say to ourselves, I am the biggest hypocrite that I know. I know how often that, I, I don't know if this ever happened to you. My grandmother was the world's worst to this, but I do the same thing. Everybody shut up. The phone's ringing. Hello? How are you doing, honey? She is nasty. Right? We're all duplicitous like that. I cannot tell you the number of times I've gotten a text and I've thrown the phone across the room and been like, this is the biggest idiot I've ever met in my life. Why am I even texting with this person? I wish they would die. And then I pick the text up and go, oh, brother, I'm so glad that you reached out to me. I'll get back with you. <laughs> Ann and I, are, uh, her car now has like 300,000 miles on it. The air doesn't work. Uh, half the windows won't roll down. It's, 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 occasionally I have to push it back up the hill. It's dying. And so we're in the process of going to car lots and talking to, to car dealers about, uh, about trying to find a new car within our price range. You know, we want it all like everybody else. It's like, I really, I want to pay like $3,000 for it, but I want it to have less than 20,000 miles and I have at least 10 years of warranty left. And I'd like it to look good. Sunroof would be good, leather interior, but, but I can't spend any money. I mean, that's, that's really what we're looking for. If any of you know of that deal, please let me know because we're, we're desperately searching for it. So yesterday we went and talked to some car dealers and we came home and Ann's looking online and realized that one of the sales people lied to us. I mean, just straight up lied. And she's like shocked and hurt. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is a, literally a used car salesman. What do you expect? <laughs> if they pass a lie detector test, they get fired. And it's easy to look at that, but how many times have I told the truth, but I've tilted it so that it puts me in the best light? How many times have, have I left crucial parts of the story out? I mean, it's easy for us to make fun of Bill Clinton, who said, well, it's all according to what the definition of is is. But how often have we played fast and loose with the truth? And so we read Jesus' admonition to the disciples, and we don't like it. It makes us uncomfortable. What am I supposed to do? There, there's no hope. 
And then Jesus offers the first half of the solution. We fear God. We fear the Father. And then he says, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. There's my out. There's my salvation. We read that and we go, well, that's telling me that I, I, I have to pray at the school or I'm going to get in trouble. And yes, there's an element of that sort of thing. But what Jesus is saying here is, yes, you're all a bunch of hypocrites. The Father's the one who's judging you. Acknowledge me. He took our place. You see, we all break the law. We all are a bunch of hypocrites. We're all a bunch of phonies. We're trying to get where we cannot arrive. Take any command, the one that really makes me weep because I, I do a lot of marriage counseling and pre-marriage counseling and I sit across from people almost three or four times every week and I say, the Bible says here in the book of Ephesians, for husbands to love his wife the way Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. What a lying hypocrite. I can't do that. I can love her, but I can't love her with the sacrificial love that Jesus gave for his church. It's not possible. My flesh keeps rising up and saying, fight for your way. And so I don't have any hope, and that's just one example. The Bible constantly tells me to do things that I can't do. I'm a, if I lived in the light of just the law, I'm a walking failure. And what Jesus says, the first step is fearing God, realizing that he holds us accountable. And the second step is realizing you can't do anything about it. And so you cry out to the Son. Because on that day, as Jesus stood hung between heaven and hell, the punishment that you and I deserve, the hell that we need, the wrath that God has kept because it's been stored up for us was poured out on him. So that when he said, it is finished, the wrath was exhausted for those who would call on him. So he's saying, the, the first step is fear God. The second step is confess the son. He made a way. When we couldn't, it wasn't anything that we did. It wasn't because we were good people, it, because we're not. It wasn't because he looked at heaven and said, now that guy, I need him on my team. We realize that we are of no help on our own. And second of all, that we needed a savior and we acknowledge him before man. Now, the Bible makes it really clear that that is exactly what salvation is. There is no contradiction between this and Romans 10, which says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This is salvation according to Jesus. Acknowledge me before men, and I'll acknowledge you before the angels. Remember, and that last day when heaven and hell are cast in the where death and hell are cast in the lake of fire, and this is the second death. Who carried people there? It's those angels. If you call in the name of the Lord, you're free. That's that regeneration. And so the first step is to fear God. The second step is to confess the Son. Now, how do we change? 
the entire time that I grew up, we would have this phenomenon at church. You would have somebody that would come to give their testimony. And they would stand up and they would, it was almost like at times it felt like a contest to see who could have sinned the worst. It's like, you know, I, I did all the alcohols, I, I took all the marijuanas, I, I, I did, did heroin, I did LSD, I had prostitutes, I stayed drunk all the time. And then God saved me and now I don't want that stuff anymore. And yet, I as a teenager who was struggling with lust, struggling with money, that I didn't have any, I'm struggling with wanting something for myself instead of giving my life to God, I'm sitting in my pew going, that's not what happened for me. I got saved and I was still lusting. I got saved and I still wanted my way. Am I alone in that? And I kept thinking, maybe the gospel's broken with me. So every time you turned around, I was getting saved again. Because I kept lusting. I kept struggling. And then I started reading the Bible and seeing that Paul says that he's struggling. I see Peter talking, denying Jesus three times. To the point that that third time, as Jesus cut, it says that they caught eyes across the courtyard. You've got to imagine that at that moment, Peter's heart was ripped out. Because the Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. I've wept bitterly before at my own sin. I've wept bitterly before at my own failures. I got saved in 1983. And yet I, every year when we do a background check for me, i got to go explain to somebody why in 1999 I got a DUI. Why in 19, I don't know, we don't need to go through my arrest record. I'm, uh, if you want to talk to me through my arrest record, we, we can have a conversation. My point is, is that I still struggle with my sin. He said, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, that is such a misunderstood text in Scripture. So many people... I've had, I've had brothers that are in this room right now come to me and say, you know, when I was 13, I was at church, and I, somebody read that Scripture, and I walked outside of the church and said, damn the Holy Spirit, so I can never get saved. I'm like, no. No, that's not what this is talking about. Okay, so first of all, we realize that outside of... Christ, nobody in this room got saved. None of us got saved on our own, right? We had to be drawn. We had to be convicted. The Bible says that the things of God are foolishness to the natural man. Before you got saved, you heard the gospel and you were like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I don't need anybody. And then you felt convicted. Everybody in here, your testimony lines up similar where the Holy Spirit started drawing you, showing you that you were wicked, showing you that you needed a Savior until finally there was that moment where you said, enough, God save me, right? That's, that's the way it happens. If you deny the Holy Spirit, you're never going to get to that point. If you start being convicted and you go, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. I'm not even thinking about this anymore. And you put it off and you put it off, you put it off. Eventually what happens is you get a hard heart and you don't feel that conviction anymore. And then 
you're going to go to hell. And so what he's saying is, is that before you get saved, the Holy Spirit's got to draw you. You've got to be drawn. That's why, and thank you God for that, because you know what? I can't save anybody in this room. If there are people in here and you don't know Jesus, I cannot say enough words to get you saved. If I could, somebody else could say enough words to get you unsaved. But what God does, he seals. And when God saves somebody, they're saved. Now again, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden, woo, we're perfect, and I don't desire sin anymore. And I walk by Victoria's Secret in the mall and go, not my problem anymore. And I'm high-stepping for Jesus. That's not reality. But you know what? Who does convict me and change me and teach me? It's that same Holy Spirit. That when I see sin in my life, I don't feel bad on my own. I don't feel bad for doing stuff that I like. Right? I mean, if if anybody in here feels so led and the Lord leads you, go buy me a 12 pack of Reese cups. I'll eat every one of them and not care a little bit about it. Right there in front of you. But when I do something that I know I'm not supposed to do and I have tried in my life to be happy in my sin, I can't. When I ran from God And I, I, you know, I've jo- I joke with the guys when I preach at CR and say, I was sick and tired of somebody telling me what to do, so I went and joined the Marine Corps. Um, and that was really about the logic of my thought process. You know what, ain't nobody going to tell me what to do anymore. I'm going to Paris Island. Um, and so I graduated from Paris Island. And I don't know if any of you have ever been to Camp Lejeune in the 80s and 90s, but there was a particular street on, in, in Jacksonville, North Carolina. It's called Court Street. And it was full from end to end. In fact, it had, on both ends of it, it had, to Marines, very famous uh, topless bars. And then up and down through there were just dive bars from end to end. And so all the Marines, you know, on payday, everybody would come out of the woodwork. And you'd go from end to end up and down those bars. Having fun, right? I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go have a good time. There was a guy who in Vietnam uh, had been throwing a white phosphorus grenade. And he had pulled the pin, and he cocked back in the good Marine fashion to throw that white phosphorus grenade, and he got shot through the back of the hand. And when he got shot through the back of the hand, that Willie Peak grenade went off, and it completely burnt off the right side of his body. In fact, he tells the story. I've heard him in a church since then. He tells a story about how they threw him in a rice paddy to try to put the fire out, and white phosphorus creates its own oxygen. And he's laying there in that rice paddy watching his skin float to the top of the water. And so he ended up going to a a hospital in, in Vietnam and then getting sent to Germany and from there to Walter Reed. And he spent years there. And while he was at Walter Reed, he got saved. This guy was a hard-charging Marine. He, both of his eyes had been removed, and he, for his pupils inside of his eyeballs, he had little eagle globes and anchors. I mean, this guy was hardcore. And he, when he wore his dress blues, which he did every weekend, he pinned the arm. He still had his left arm. He would pinned the, the sleeve of his right arm, but he literally, from the top of his, his uh, buttons to the, his shoulder, he had medals. And every Friday and Saturday night, he would stand out on Court Street and he would preach the gospel. And I remember really well walking out of a bar 
and hearing him saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn to Jesus. He will save you. And me, being a believer who was living in the pits of hell, walked out of that bar and it made me so mad. Why can't you just leave me alone, God? I want to just do what I want to do. Shut up. And I remember going up to this guy standing there with more courage than I've ever had in my life. Standing on that street corner preaching Jesus and yelling, shut up. I don't want to hear any of this garbage. I just want to do what I want to do. And the whole time the hound of heaven was on my feet, convicting me, drawing me, keeping me up at night saying, you're mine, you can't do what you want to do. And I was miserable. I couldn't be happy in my sin. I tried. And I remember very well outside of Emily's bedroom one night about 3 o'clock in the morning, getting on my face and saying, God, I am a loser. I've got a beautiful wife. I've got the home that I've always dreamed of. I've got a job that pays all the bills with some left over. And I'm miserable. God, please, I just want to be happy. And that was the day that I began. God began rebuilding me. And letting me see that His Holy Spirit's not going to let me go. And convicting me and drawing me. And day after day, He puts His finger and says, That's selfish. Stop doing that. And I confess that sin. And I move on. And then the next day, God says, Hey, the way you're talking to your wife, does that really reflect me? When I'm at Hardee's and I, I tell somebody, Hey, I ordered this sausage biscuit. Now give it here. Holy Spirit's in, them, in my head going, really? And I died for you and you're upset about this? And so we see in this text that I was so stupid that I didn't want to preach because I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We see the answer to how to walk in faith. How to walk in that balance between the law and grace. The Father is, knows the rules. We fear God. We never give up that fear of God. But we can't attain. And so the Son is available for us to confess Him. And He recreates us when we confess Him. And then because we're powerless without God, He gives us His Holy Spirit so that day after day after day we walk through life being day after day, inch by inch, sometimes it feels so slow. Little by little, we get transformed. We get changed. This little passage about hypocrisy just blows open how the Trinity works to make you a new creation. And it's all, if we really break it down into one word, that word would be worship. You see, worship, we've so cheapened that word when we say, hey, you going to worship today? But worship is when I realize that there's something outside of me that's bigger than me that I need to honor. That's really what worship is. And I'm not... When I say that we've cheapened it by just making it the part of the service, I'm not at all saying that singing is not worship. It is a part of worship. It is. In fact, one of the most beautiful pictures I've ever seen of worship I got to see this week 
as Vicki Whaley was going home to be with Jesus. They had taken the machines off of her. We're literally waiting for her to die. And her sister put, had put on some music in the room. And they look over and minutes outside of glory, she's raising her hands and she's singing along with this song. That's worship. But worship is also when I realize that this toy that I'm holding on to, that I think is so important, I lay it on the altar and say, God, take this. You're more important than me. Worship can, can be changing a diaper because I realize that that's bigger than me and that I'm having an impact for Christ's kingdom. Worship can be, be me cutting my grass because that represents Christ's well. Worship can be anything that I do if I do it for His glory. You know, Martin Luther famously said, if you want to be a Christian who makes shoes, don't make shoes with little crosses on them. Make the best shoes you can to the glory of God. And so we're real worship is that I go through my life day after day after day and I live in the light of exactly what this is saying. Realize that God is bigger than me. He deserves my praise. He deserves my adulation. Realizing that I can't do that in my own power. That I need the Son to have redeemed me. And realizing that God gave me that paraclete, that Holy Spirit, to help me, to teach me, to comfort me, and to be with me. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Oh God, we are such hypocrites. God, I pray... That you would help us to lean on the power in this text. God, that we would see the Trinitarian divine that is painted here. That empowers us and changes us and moves us. We're so stupid if all we focus on is the broken law. But we're stupid if we ignore it. God, we need you to teach us. We need you to empower us. We need the work of the Son to save us. We need the work of the Holy Spirit to change us. Oh God, we need you. God, I pray that you would help the people in this room to call out on your name. Those who don't know you, I pray that they would call out to be saved. God, those that do know you, that they would call out on you to change them. And God, that we would become a people who live lives of worship. Freeing us from our own hypocrisy. God, we thank you that this text shows us that the antidote to hypocrisy is worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.